Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time for the man who taught Vince Carter how to slam. You can't make this tough up. <laughs> the man whose three inspired the Curry family. It's time for you know who my man Seiku. Go It's Seiku's Miss Hang Time Podcast. Take it away. Welcome into the Hang Time Podcast. Seiku Smith, your host here in Atlanta. I appreciate my man Boestes on the intro. Got a great listen for you this week here on the podcast. Somebody from from the recent past in the NBA. Atlanta Hawks fans will know him well. Arizona Wildcat fans will obviously know his name and cherish the time he spent in a Wildcats uniform. Salim Stoudemire, a sharpshooter who I think was ahead of his time in terms of how he played the game. Um, uh, you know, smallish point guard by a lot of people's standards, but a guy with unlimited range on his shot was a dead dead-eyed three-point shooter, shot 50% in college, 31st pick in the 2005 draft, and spent the 2005 through 2008, he was was an option for the Atlanta Hawks as they were rebuilding their program. But he vanished from the scene. He really had one of those situations where I think he was a player who was truly ahead of his time, Um, just didn't fit in the NBA at that time. But now you look around the league, and their guys thriving, playing that same way. So I've been on him for a few years, wanting to get him on the podcast, wanting to talk about what he went through and, and kind of what his journey was. And also he's a guy who embraced a vegan lifestyle long before it was popular, long before it became a thing. Um, and so I wanted to talk to him as well about that and, and what impact that had on his NBA career. I think it certainly played a role and why he didn't get an opportunity to play longer. Um, so without further ado, here's here's my sit-down with Salim Stoudemire. I think you'll enjoy it. And you just listen to the thoughtful responses you get from a guy who spent some quality time in the NBA and has been a basketball lifer from a family full of hoopers. Salim, I, I always think to myself when I look back at players that I've seen come through the NBA and say, this is a guy who was either ahead of his time or – was a uh, was a player who could have thrived in a different era. And I think about your game and, and kind of the things you were doing when you came into the league, and, and it was almost like you were five or six years ahead of the curve. Um, you had unlimited distance on your shot. You played 
a space, uh, you know, kind of a pace and space game before that was a, a, a thing. Um, when you look back on your career, do you almost feel like you, you, you came along b- before the game was ready for you? I've heard many people say that. And I really didn't reflect on it until recently. And I've paid attention to the nuances and how the current players um, carry a certain style and just a way of going about things. And I do see a lot of similarities. And I feel that when I did arrive into the NBA, it was a whole different style and pace. And I guess you could say that I could have been ahead of my time, but I'm never the one to toot my own horn or say I'm better than anybody or any group of individuals. So it was just a space and timing thing. And I'm still connected with the current players, and I just try to help out in any way, fashion, shape, or form that I can. And I just appreciate basketball, and I love it. So, so that brings me to, you know, you, uh, a, you know, college all American in Arizona, Pac ten freshman of the year, you know, first team all Pac ten, all American, you know, all the accolades you could want, you know, thirty first pick in the draft in two thousand five. You come into a situation in Atlanta where it's a it's clearly a rebuilding situation. You got a lot of young players. What was what was that experience like for you when you first got into the league, coming into an organization that really was trying to find itself? Like, how difficult was that for you, trying to find your way in a situation where really everybody was was trying to find a lane? It was definitely difficult, and I had never experienced losing before in my entire life. So it was a Big adjustment as far as the mental is concerned. Um, Our ownership was not stable. And obviously a lot of players were, you know, pushing to get contracts and things of that nature. I won't name any names. But usually when you're in a (laughs) rebuilding stage and you have young players, a lot of guys are trying to find their niche. So I understand the nature. But it was definitely difficult. But I feel like all the wisdom that I gained from the experience has helped me shine light on up-and-coming players so that they won't go through what I went through and face some of the obstacles that I faced. So it was a blessing. If you if you take that experience, you know, the things you dealt with in your, your NBA career and you really grind them up now, what do you think was the – the one thing that didn't allow you to play longer and to maybe play to your potential? Because I know you felt like at the time, you know, you weren't being used as as effectively as you could have been. I think a lot of us who were covering the team or around the team, around the Atlanta Hawks when you came into the league, felt like, man, there's got to be a better way to take advantage of the skill set you know, the best this guy's the best shooter on the team, the, the the best distance shooter on the team. You know, nobody had range like you did. Um, but it just always seemed like they, they couldn't find the right role for you in, in on that team. You want my honest opinion? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. Nothing but. <laughs> okay, how can I put this? Um, I would say that I feel personally that initially things could have been handled differently as far as how to utilize me, but I understand that everybody was growing and trying to become the best that they can be, whether that is the coaching staff, whether that's the ownership, players, just whomever. But with that being said, I had enough opportunity in the beginning stages to show what I'm potentially capable of. And I want to touch on this subject because I feel it's very prevalent and it happens a lot and it's swept under the rug. A lot of times when players are, um, you know, trying to establish themselves, they throw a lot of other people under the bus. And it may not be intentional. It may not be because they dislike someone. It's just because they feel like they want to have a long career and take care of their family, which I understand. But it's bigger than a game to me. Basketball is a culture. And there are certain principles and certain ethics that I feel you should have to carry. And that's how you should uh, maneuver. And I was just, a, I don't want to say a victim, but the situation that presented itself was one where I was kind of targeted and certain people developed a perception of me which wasn't true. And from that point on, politics weren't in my favor, and it caused me to have a decrease in minutes and an opportunity for me to really display what I fully could do. I'm not bitter. I'm not jealous of people who actually did get to reach their full potential or have a lengthy career. But I feel like I can pass what I went through onto younger guys so that they can have a better chance at reaching their full potential. But as a group and as a whole, we have to do a better job of policing each other and holding ourselves accountable for our actions and not trying to paint a picture as if we're so clean-hearted and that we can't do any harm and then try to make it seem like it's other people. And I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> no, you. I know I, you, but I mean, anybody that was around could sense that it wasn't the connectivity it maybe should have been, you know. Um, but so many, like you mentioned, so many young players trying to find their way on, on one roster. That to me, that's become a thing that's really obvious about some of these teams who spend extended amount of time in the lottery. Like, you know, they pile up young players, you get all these picks, you got a really young group trying to grow them together, and it's just difficult. It's not enough It's not enough minutes. Um, it's only one ball, so it's, it's so difficult for each and every guy to be able to grow and develop the way you need to. But now that you are at a different stage of your career and you're working with so many other players, young players on skills, I know how much, you know, training you do. 
Are you noticing that the league has changed in that time as well and that there's maybe a, a stronger um, player development program in place around the league, every franchise maybe that wasn't there when you came in in 2005? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily better, but I do feel like the intentions are there to make it better. And the one thing that I always question especially dealing with the Atlanta Hawks, is why former players never came in and helped with the development. I had Joe Johnson on my team, and there's no reason why a Steve Smith shouldn't have been in the gym giving Joe Johnson pointers. Or right. Josh Smith, Dominique, and, Dominique Wilkins and I used to always talk. And he would say, man, I can help Josh. I can show him so many things. Um, you know, there have been point guards who have came through, defensive point guards, scoring point guards. And I just felt like that could have been better in that area where former players, like a Dikembe Mutombo, he could have came in and helped with defense. Um, I just felt like that was kind of lacking a little bit, and that's what kind of bothered me. But I feel like there are strides in the right direction currently. There's another part to your story that I think has been, you know, undertold and just really never been focused on when you talk about certain guys. You were you were a guy who who had a lifestyle style change in terms of, you know, I remember you announcing that that you were going vegan and that. And that was going to be something that you were very serious and committed to. And I remember one of the coaches coming up to me. We were having a conversation. He was like, yeah, can you believe this? You know, he's going to go vegan. He's like, as if that was some bad thing. Like, you know, but it was really maybe just ignorance. You know, they didn't, a lot of people didn't understand it. Um, what what led you to that part of of of, of how you wanted to live Back then, before it, it became a you know something that was um, universally you know accepted and popular, like what what led you to knowing about that? Was it just reading about it and studying about it? Um, but you went there when when nobody else was really going there publicly. How can I begin? Well, <laughs> my family and close friends know that I do listen to people as far as advice, but at the end of the day, I'm definitely going to follow my heart and my mind. Um, growing up in Oregon, I was a nature boy. I was always outside just enjoying nature. And as a child, I always questioned why we would eat things that are just out in nature, not harming anyone. For instance, salmon. I mean, that's everywhere in Oregon. I didn't understand why people ate fish. But as an athlete, I was always taught that you need meat for protein. But no one ever told me that you can get those same things from plants. So I started to do research after my first year with the Hawks because I wasn't a vegan at first but I was leaning towards that direction. 
And what actually confirmed it for me or made me go to cold turkey is when I took a trip to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. I actually went for a celebrity golf tournament and ended up not participating in the golfing at all. <laughs> I found some locals. They embraced mm -hmm. me, taught me about the culture, took me around sightseeing, meeting all the people. And it just so happened to be that all of them were vegan. And that was the confirmation for me because I always knew those type of people existed, but I never was exposed to them. So when I finally got that exposure, it just gave me the confidence to make the switch right away. And I switched that very day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what kind of, what kind of blowback did you get internally once, once you made that clear? I mean, I know the teams have a chef, you know, so they're preparing meals for players every day. Um, you know, post-practice, whatever. What kind of reaction did you get from your teammates, coaches, anybody in the organization? Did anybody say anything to you about it? Absolutely. I'll start with the chef. I had a great relationship mm -hmm. with the chef at the time. His name was Brad. Peace to him, too. Yeah. We had such a great relationship that he was open to anything because he just cared about me as a person. So he just came to me and said, Salim, I understand this is different, but I like you. So whatever you need from me, I will provide. So that wasn't a problem. But when it came to my teammates, I mean, there were all kind of jokes. Um, I mean, every day I walked in, somebody had a joke for me. But I didn't take it personal because I knew that just like I was before, I didn't have that exposure and that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So I knew where they were at, and I did not take that personal. And I used every day as, as an opportunity to teach them so they can learn more. And eventually I had guys trying my food, and then some of them were open to even mm -hmm. becoming vegans in the future. I don't know if that actually happened, but just to spark something was enough for me. As far as my coaching staff... Nobody believed in me. <laughs> I mean, I constantly got comments like, you can't be in the NBA and be a vegan. But once again, I just knew that they were blind to the fact that these things exist because that's not what we have been taught our whole lives, especially as athletes. The interesting part, the interesting part about the whole ordeal was that one of the owners, Guerin, his father, mm -hmm. Guerin Sr., actually used to be a vegan. So he and I had many, multiple discussions about it. And he agreed mm -hmm. and accepted and supported my decision. So I feel like that went a long way. And if I didn't have him in my corner, I don't know how things could have went. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah are you surprised now just looking at how big a deal it is around the league now with so many players high profile players now you know have have stepped into that space 
it's amazing to see the MBA and these businesses accept it and market it. But mm-hmm. I always know that it takes one person to actually step outside of their comfort comfort zone and outside of the box to allow other people to feel confident as well and make those decisions. And sometimes you have to take the hit for other people to be able to, you know, fulfill the mission. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting to me. I would, a couple of years ago, we were trying to talk to Kyrie Irving about going vegan. And it was like, it was weird that he, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to, you know, and it was, it was like this, this taboo thing. Like he, you know, he couldn't, he didn't want to admit to, to doing, you know, to, to making a lifestyle change like that, which seems strange to me now when you have so many people, not just in the NBA, but in all over the place and, in, in, in all sorts of sports and in all sorts of public spaces, embracing that, that lifestyle. I, my wife is 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 headed in that direction. Like she's she's whittled down her her you know the, any meat she would eat to basically nothing, and she's wow. she's on my case about it. You know, and I'm like, this is not new to me. I I knew a dude who was you know about this a long time ago, and and nobody was with it. I just I just find it really strange that there's kind of this the stigma around the, around it in sports, especially. Um, you would think that the cutting edge training and um, dietary things that, that are involved in professional sports, that if it's going to help somebody optimize their performance, you know, you would, you would dive into that head first. So just very strange to me. Um, well, well, I feel everything is connected um, business wise. You know, you have certain products that you use, and that you recommend, mm-hmm. and things are passed on. So that was just the overall setting of just sports in general. Like, this is where you get your protein. This is where you get your supplements and things of that nature. So to change that, I mm-hmm. mean, that requires a lot of work. I mean, you basically have to restructure the whole program. And if you don't have the knowledge, how are you going to start to implement those things? And if you're not living that lifestyle or even open to it, I can't (laughs) see you ever implementing it. So it takes someone from the inside who's willing to either go through it or study someone who's going through it with an open heart and an open mind so that they can become more knowledgeable and then potentially put things into place where these type of options are available for the masses. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you how, how clueless some people are. I'm going to out myself here. Um, a couple of years ago, I was out in Seattle for a WNBA playoff game. And so I'm at the hotel late at night, you know, in, you know, Pacific Northwest, as you know, being being from there and living there, and it's a different vibe. You know, they, they do things differently. So I'm I'm at the hotel at the bar late, you know, after the game. And I was like, man, I'm, I want something to eat, but I don't want to eat horrible. So I'm telling this to the guy at the at the bar. And he's like, well, you know, we got these impossible sliders. You, you know, you can rock with those. He's like, you might like those. I had no idea what impossible meant. I was just like, 
sliders. I was like, yeah, those sound less harm. You know, those sound as harmful as eating a cheeseburger. I was like, so I go with the the, the impossible sliders, and I ate them, and I was like, that's different. I ate meat tastes different. So when I talked to my wife, like the next morning, I told her, I was like, yeah, I had these impossible sliders last night. I thought impossible was like the name on the menu, like that was the, you know, they call something the, you know, whatever cheeseburger. I was like, so I just thought that was kind of a brand name for the the sliders, not necessarily uh, a different meat. And she was like. Oh, you ate Impossible? And I was like, yeah. I was like, you heard of him? He's like, you've never even been to Seattle. How would you know about him? She's like, no. She's like, no, Impossible is a plant-based, you know, uh, product now that's substituting for meat for a lot of people. So I didn't even know what it was when I heard about it. Um, it so, it's, you know, like you said, if you don't have a knowledge of, of that, you know, that culture and what's going on, you could miss a lot of it. I, I, I see that. Um I'm I'm wondering though for you throughout all of the things you you've done in your life you know still obviously a very young man and with with so much more to do man what what has kept the basketball flame lit for you all these years I mean I know you love the game I see you can tell you love it watching your videos and just watching you work out man <laughs> what is it about the game that first made you fall in love with it and has kept you caught up in that love affair all these years well, first of all, it's just in my blood. I mean, my cousin played 13 years. His father actually got drafted. And, and when I say right. my cousin, I'm speaking of Damon Stoudemire. <laughs> for the new generation right. who may not know who he is. <laughs> His father actually um, got drafted to the uh, Supersonic. Okay. So, I mean, it runs in the family. My dad played. But then he switched up and then got drafted into the NFL. Mm -hmm. My brother played, uh, all my uncles. So it was just something I was naturally born into, and it's just in my blood. I can feel it just naturally. Yeah. Um, I would say what keeps it lit is the feeling that I get from the universe and the cosmos. I've always felt like my mission was not to be considered the best by the masses or the, the writers or whomever who makes these lists. It was just to fulfill a certain mission, and that's to open people's hearts and minds to something different than what we're being taught. And I've always walked with that spirit and carried that energy ever since I was young. I just felt like my mission was going to be different than other people. Not saying that I'm better or trying to put myself in a different class. It's just I went, I went with that energy and never disregarded it and shunned it. I invited it. And that's probably the reason why I walked this life. Um, I really don't have any examples. This is all off the fly, natural and organic and pure. And I don't think that fire is ever going to stop until I get up one day and I can't go to the gym anymore. But until then, <laughs> man, you know, I'm putting in that work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Regardless of what happened. Yeah. So you, you, I, I know you have have really dug in and started showing some other people, you know, uh, 
how to train and how to, you know, be effective shooting the ball. I mean, you, I mean, man, you shot 50% from three in college, which was insane. I remember at the time, I think it was that 2004, 2005 season when you played in Arizona. And I remember saying to myself, like, Stoudemire's got, got a cousin that can shoot like this? Like, you know, because we knew Damon. We knew him and had seen what he could do at the NBA level. But I was I was stunned to see, dang, it's another one? Um, when did when did you develop that part of your game, that just that pure shot that you could that you could get off from from wherever you were on the floor and against guys who were bigger than you without problem. Like when did you when did that part of your game become something that you mastered? I would say early. Um mm-hmm. I fell in love with shooting when I was three when I made my first shot. And ever since that moment of seeing the ball go through the net, I was in awe. It was like <laughs> the best thing ever. <laughs> so I just wanted that repetition. I wanted to see that over and over again. But I would say the thing that actually propelled me to being able to do those type of things that you were talking about was when I mm-hmm. linked up with a particular trainer. And he actually trained my cousin Damon and also Terrell Brandon, who was, a, I think, two-time All-Star. Um, yeah. So he really fine-tuned my skill set and showed me so many things that helped me along the way and prepared me to be able to do those things that you were just discussing. Yeah, I mean, and one other part about that, I, I was important last year with the playoffs, and I always tell people when I'm out there and I come back how how hoops crazy like people in Portland and Seattle are. I don't I don't think people on in this part of the country appreciate the love people in the Pacific Northwest have for basketball. Not just the the Trailblazers or the Super Sam. I'm talking about my best my best friend is from Seattle. So I went my first time out there was in college. I spent like two weeks out there with him during Christmas break. Um uh, like after our sophomore year in college. And we went to play every day at the Rainier Beach Community Center. When I tell you every day, I'm talking about we got up every day, the entire vacation. And he was like, yeah, what time do you want to go to the gym today? And I was like, man, y'all play every day out here? He was like, yeah, we play 365. Like, it's what we do. Um, I, I think Portland and Seattle are, like, vastly underrated places in terms of when you think of the places on in the United States, especially that, that love basketball, Fred Jones. And I used to talk about this all the time when he was playing for the Indiana Pacers, I was covering him. He was like, man, he was like, we, all we do is play ball in Portland. Um, did, so did you play in that same vein when you were coming up just where it was a Absolutely. daily routine for guys? Yeah. Absolutely. I grew up playing with Fred. I grew up playing with all those guys in Seattle, the Nate Robinsons, and, you know, all those guys. Uh, Jamal Crawford was a little bit older, but I always made sure I watched him. I've always been a fan of him. Um, and I think a reason why Oregon and Washington gets left under the radar is because it's Oregon and Washington. 
mean, it's beautiful as far as nature. You know, you like outdoors. I mean, you got to love the rain because, whew, man, you can't, you can't escape that unless it's the summertime. But other than that, I mean, there's not a lot to do. You know, that's why there's a laid-back vibe, very relaxed, not really fast-paced or anything like that. So I think that those can be potentials to those places being left under the radar because there's not a lot going on, per se. You know, in, in rounding this up, man, what's what's next for you in terms of the basketball just in life? Like, where, where is Salim Stoudemire at now and where are you headed? you know, in, in your near future? I'm glad you asked that. I have a potential opportunity to go play, and I'm supposed to find out this Friday. So mm-hmm. I want everybody to know who's tuned in or who will tune in that Shalim is in the gym looking to play. And that will never stop until I get up and I cannot walk myself to the gym and put the work in. I'm always into the mentorship, you know, the development, because I I know those things are pertinent and important. But I feel like a lot of people, even though they may not tell you, are tracking my journey and are being inspired by the things that I'm doing. And I'm just going to continue to do that and just try to be a, a beacon of light and positivity in people's lives. Hopefully to inspire them to be true to themselves and have the courage to step outside of those those barriers that have been put on us and just be free, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You got one chance at life. Live it to the fullest. I don't know anybody that can argue that, man. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you because I want to see you, you know, do what you do best, man, and enjoy it and um, and fulfill whatever aspirations you have in the game. And and I like that you have never seemed bitter about, you know, you could have been real bitter about the way your career went down in the NBA. I, I feel man. like there are a lot of guys who could, <laughs> who could look up and be like, yo, you know, I, I got dealt a dirty hand. You never, you've never done that, which is, which I think is one of the qualities about you that I, a lot of us, appreciate to this day um, that you haven't carried that the way that a lot of people would, man. Because I know we both know guys have come in and out of this league and and been bitter about how it went down or didn't feel like they got a fair shake and, it, and they could never shake it. But to me, you always seemed like you was positive and, and moving forward. And, I, and you know, I've been messing with you for years now about, like, I want to I want to talk to you because I want to know what's going on. I want to know what happened. I want to know how you felt about it. So I'm, I appreciate you taking appreciate you taking some time finally to uh, to talk about this, man. It's, it's it's interesting stuff, and it's gonna give us a chance to follow you going forward too. To like you said, whatever comes next, I know you're gonna be in the gym. I know you're gonna be doing what you do, man, and, and enjoying the game. I appreciate you guys having me on. If there's an opportunity to come back on in the future, I definitely want to come back on because there's so much yeah. more to talk about. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. We appreciate you, Slim. And, and good luck, man, when I you find out you. what's going on this Friday, man. Keep us posted. I definitely will. And it's fate. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. <laughs> All right, brother. All right. I hope you enjoyed listening to Salim as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Um, and we'll keep up with his journey, man. Find out what's next for him in his basketball career and in his life journey. But Salim Stoudem, I appreciate him taking some time out of his day to uh, to share some insights with us about basketball and everything else he's got going on, man. Always looking forward to great conversations with really good people here on the Hang Time Podcast. I appreciate you joining us. Appreciate you taking your time out. And we'll see you right here next week on the Hang Time Podcast. Thanks for listening to Seku Smith's Hang Time Podcast. Be sure to check out previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NBA.com backslash hangtime, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, Hoops fans. <laughs>